Hey, uh, my name is Rudy Hartman. I get to rock here with Salt Company. I'm so glad you chose to join us this evening. Like, like Matthew said, we are in Acts chapter 16, so, so make sure you're, you're right there in the text with us. If you're new, super glad that you're here. Honored you choose to join us tonight. If you're old, welcome back. Uh, man, Madison's an awesome city that we live in, but it's way better when the campus is alive. So thank you for bringing life back to our town. Uh, we, we missed you a, a lot, honestly. And, and and some, something just really sweet about like this time and the fact that you're a college student is like you're around 50,000 people that are in like the same stage of life as you are, making the same decisions that you are. It's probably the last time you'll ever live in a walkable community, sorry. Um, but, but like it's an absolute incredible opportunity to get to, to look at the way that other people are living, that you're living, and the way that you all, if we're gonna just be honest, are, are constantly in a rhythm of having to make choices. <laughs> Everybody in this room has got to make uh, choices all of the time. You're making decisions, it feels like, week after week, semester after semester, that are going to set the trajectory of your life for at least the next several years. And for some of you, that's super exciting. You love that. For others of you, it's a little bit daunting, right? It's a, it's a, little, it's a little bit heavy. It's a little bit of weight. Um, have any of you ever heard of the idea of decision fatigue? Anybody in this room? All right, it's this idea, uh, it's different than being indecisive. It's this literal feeling of being more depleted with the more choices that you have to make. The problem is that like a lot of life is making choices and that your time here on campus feels like a hyper-condensed choice cauldron that you're always like caught up in and having to, to choose in the midst of. I, I know that because I can probably guess some of the questions that you got asked while you were home over winter break this last, uh, these last month or so. Like maybe you were at your mom's house and an aunt pulls up and asks you what your plans for summer are, which is code for did you get the internship or not, right? Like, or, or that they've asked you if you've decided on a major yet or if you've changed your major again or if you're taking that fifth year again, right? Okay, no, I'm, okay. <laughs> there. You're at your dad's house and you were asked if you have a job lined up after graduation and you're like, I'm a sophomore. Like, I don't, like, what am I? I'm a senior. No, like, what are we talking about? Uh, they pull up on you and they're like, hey, do you have your housing for fall yet? Which, by the way, apparently if not, like, you're out of luck. I, like, um, or my, one of my favorite, just a classic, like, hey, you dating anybody? And it's like, all right, grandma. Like, how, let's just chill, all right? Like, let's, let's chill out. Right, and, and, and here's what all of those questions really are. All of those questions are people pulling up on you and saying, hey, how are your choices going? Like, that's, that's all they're really asking. It's like, hey, how are your, how are your, your choices going? Right? We, some choices, they're just really exciting. Other choices are terrifying. Some are small, others are big. Some are simple, others are complex. Some are clear, others are incredibly overwhelming. Some have really little impact on our lives. Others have massive impact on our lives, and they change the trajectory of it. We love those big moments. Look, I've had several of those big moments. In 2016, I decided to move from Florida to Iowa. To tell you how big of a stretch that was, literally someone in my community in Florida looked at me and said, what state is Iowa in? And I was like, that's not Iowa's fault. That's on the Florida education system. Okay, so that's like a whole own thing, right? Um, the choice that I made to ask Molly to marry me in 2018. The choice to buy our first house in 2020, which is terrifying in and of itself, but it was also two days before the COVID like shut down our entire area. The choice to move to Madison, to be here in 2021, big choices. They're important, but they, they sometimes overshadow 
the smaller daily choices that all of us have to make, which are arguably just as, if not more important than some of those big choices. Big choices may determine where you go, but small choices over time will determine who you are and who you're becoming. Small daily moments are really important too. Like I, I have a couple small choices that I make every day, like the choice to tell Molly, my wife, that I love her every day, not to assume that she knows about that, but to verbalize what's true. The choice to read my Bible every day, because if I'm going to follow Jesus, then I should fill my mind with the story of God that's all about him. The choice I made a few years ago to ask each cashier at whatever coffee shop or business place I'm at, some of you are nodding your heads because you see me do this, um, what their name is because I want to remind myself and them that they're not a machine to do a transaction with, they're a person in front of me to care about. Like the choice to encourage one person every day because I want to be an honoring and encouraging person. These are just smaller everyday choices that can be as formative to who we are as the big moments. So here's what I want to do tonight. Tonight, I just want to show you three simple choices out of our text that you could make every day that would significantly shape the way that you move through life and see people as you follow Jesus. Three choices that would deeply shape who you are and who you become. Whether you've just started following Jesus, whether you've been following him for a long time, even if you don't follow Jesus, I think it'd be interesting for you to be curious that we actually do need to take these three choices as followers of, of Jesus. I want to help set you up to make these three choices every day this semester. Now, I'm going to warn you on the front end. Just knowing these choices doesn't mean anything. If you just know these choices and you don't do anything with them, then, then this was a great time for you to get some more information but not actually take these steps. I, I want you to actually choose them and to see the potential that they have to deeply form the way you experience life with God and see the people around you, not just this spring, but really for the rest of your life. And to do that, we're going to hop into Acts 16. Tonight, our text, note takers, this is for you, can be broken down in a simple way. You could write at the top of your page that this is the story of a detour, of a dream, and of a decision. We'll walk through the text, draw out these three choices, and make one final comment, and then I'll go and take my seat. Um, but open up to Acts 16. We like to say that if the word doesn't do the work, then the work won't get done. So we're going to open up the text and see what we got. Acts 16, verses 6 through 8. And then they went through the region of Phrygia, by the way, Matthew, great pronunciations, by the way, these were tough, um, and Galatia, <laughs> having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, the detour, the dream, and the decision. First, the detour. All right, a little, little bit of context. We're, we're in the book of Acts, which is a history of the early church written by a guy named Luke, who also wrote, coincidentally, the Gospel of Luke. It's kind of like a two-part story. The Gospel of Luke tells the story of Jesus, and the book of Acts tells the history of his church, the early history of it. He's writing in this moment in reference to two guys, Paul and Timothy, a pair of men who were going to help start churches in Asia Minor, this region they're in, and beyond. They're a, a church planting team, kind of like how five and a half years ago, a team came here to Madison to plant Doxa Church, which is the church that Salt Company that we are a part of. So this team of Paul and Timothy is going to start churches. The question is, where will they go? So you get into the text, and you see the first place they want to go is to Asia. They want to bring the gospel to Asia. That's great. They want to go east, but they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit. That's kind of weird, right? Like, you, you look at that, and you're like, that doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, 
well, I guess they're not going to Asia. So they change tax and they go to Bithynia, which was northwest, and the spirit of Jesus stops them. Okay, it's pretty interesting. So they head to Troas, seemingly to make another attempt to go into another city, uh, which when you think about it is absolutely wild. Just think about these guys. We're going to go start a church. We try to go one place, denied. Try to go to one place, denied. And here they go again. This, this question, this text, sorry, causes us to consider a question that's not enjoyable but is a very real experience. What do you do when your plans fail? Like, what do you do when, when everything that you were planning to do fails? You have a logical, put-together plan for your life, and then you're forced to take a detour. I mean, this is a wild experience. Like, let this kind of be odd for what it is. Imagine you're having a conversation with Paul over a cup of coffee and whatever the first century intro as equivalent of Collectivo is, right? We're pulling up in Collectivo. You see Paul over there, and you're like, Paul, I thought you were going to plant a church in Asia. Really good to see you. How did that go? And he's like, yeah, uh, Spirit of God told us not to. And you're like, Okay, uh, cool, right? Okay, well, th then you just came here, right? And he's like, no, nah, we went to Bithynia too. The Spirit of God told us not to again. And you're like, okay. And then Paul sits there and he's like, yeah, but we'll try another place and just see what happens. Oh, okay. Um, I love, just to pull aside, I love that this is in the Bible uh, because it kind of feels like it doesn't have to be, Right? Like, Luke could have just edited this part out, right, and said, nah, and then they went to Troas, and, like, skipped the stuff that kind of feels like it's a little bit embarrassing, but instead he kept these details. It's good because it's verifiable and true. Eyewitnesses would have said, yeah, we saw Paul in these places, and we saw him leave. It's a, it's a beautiful reality of, of, of it being verifiable, but it also shows the character of the early church. Uh, they didn't hide anything. They were willing to record as historical account in scripture that Paul was interrupted and detoured twice. Now we get to ask this question from the text. What do you do when your plans fail? Like what question would you have for Paul if you pulled up to him over that cup of coffee? Can you imagine how disheartening this would be? Of course you can. Because every single person in this room has had plans laid out that have shriveled up and died. Every single one of you has planned to do something has thought this is what was going to happen, and then it didn't. Every single one of you has had to ask that question, what do you do when your plans fail? Is it the same? No. Is it similar? Absolutely. You've experienced a detour, an interruption, a closed door, whatever you want to call it, you've experienced that. But I don't want you to move too quickly from just relating to the detour in the text because there's something incredible that we can learn from Paul, a choice that we see him make here that we also can make every day. But before we go into what that is, I wanna get a little curious for a moment. What do you think it was that kept Paul going? Like when he's like, we're gonna go plant a church. No, gonna go plant it here. No, okay. What, what kept Paul going? Like when he hit his detour, an interruption, a, a break in his plans, what kept him going? It's interesting. We know that the doors were closed in this text, but we do not know why. But Paul didn't have a why to either one of these as far as we can tell. And I'm sure that many of you are like me, that when you hit a detour, when you hit an interruption, when your plans fail, maybe when you have a, a painful disruption in your life, you think that having a why as to a reason of why that is would be pretty nice. We just mean to admit that a why would be pretty nice. I think whys are very nice. But there's a dirty little secret behind whys. 
and it's that wives do not negate reality. You can have a wife for anything in your life, and it does not change the reality of what happened and what you experienced. Knowing why the divorce happened does not negate the pain of the divorce, especially experiencing it as a child of divorce. Knowing why that person ghosted you and doesn't talk to you anymore does not negate the difficulty and insecurity that you feel because that relationship is broken. Knowing why that thing happened to you doesn't take it away. Wise are nice, but they do not negate the disruption, the suffering, the difficulty, the detour that is real. Sometimes we want wise. Other times, if we're honest, we don't even care about the why. We just want it to not have happened. We could have a wife or everything that's ever happened in our life, and it wouldn't negate the reality that parts of your life have been hard. And I'm right there with you. 2023 was point blank period, the most painful year of my life. I walked out of it near to Jesus and near to my wife and with very few whys. And what I've learned in reading and in relationship is that not having a why actually puts me in pretty good company. At the very least, it puts me in the company of Paul. Please don't miss this. While Paul did not have a why as to what happened to him happened to him, it does not mean that he had nothing. Paul did not have a why, but he did have a who. Back to our question, what kept Paul going when he didn't have a why? What kept Paul going when he didn't have a why is that he had a who. Paul had Jesus. And even more important than that, Jesus had Paul. It was a simple faith that did not deny the reality of his situation and simultaneously trusted in the goodness of God to define his reality as he walked through difficult things and failed plans. You finish that coffee conversation with Paul and you pull up on him and you're like, Paul, why do you think that happened? And I wonder if he might have responded and said, I don't know why. I don't. But I do know that Jesus is good and I know that I'm with him and that he's with me and that's enough for right now. So we'll keep going. And it's in this moment that we see the first choice that Paul's life presents for us to make. The choice we can make every single day. We see Paul do it here and we're invited to do it as well. And it's the choice to live with open hands. It's this first choice that you can make every day is to live with open hands. To open your hands every day this semester to a daily trust of God and his goodness. Not to deny your reality or pretend like the things that around you are hard didn't happen, but in the middle of a reality marked by detours to trust Jesus to define it. To live in surrender, perhaps, more than you live in control. The demand of our lives and our culture to live in complete control of everything and everyone around you, to live in complete control of your future and the future of everybody around you is the genesis of so much of the stress and the worry that all of us experience in our lives. The myth of control is in the air that we breathe in our city and on our campus, and we often think that we are in control of far more things than we actually are. So what happens is we hit detours like this, and instead of responding like Paul does, it feels like our lives have fallen apart. Why? Because our closed, controlling hands meet closed doors and we crash. Our demand for control doesn't know how to deal with detours. Maybe the detour that you've experienced came from a choice that you made. Maybe it felt like it came from a choice that you didn't make. Maybe someone did something to you or... Someone did something near you and it derailed your life. In a room like this, I'm sure that that's the case. And while God didn't do that to you, I'm so sorry because that's so painful. But I do wonder what might happen if over time we had the courage by the grace of Christ to live with open hands. If we would choose to live with a simple trust in our who even in the moments when we don't know why.
Over hands, uh, oh, sorry, over time, open hands develop a disposition of trust towards God, not suspicion. Over time, open hands look at interruptions as, in, as, as invitations to intimacy with God. That they're a place where you learn how to come to him and honestly say, that didn't go the way I wanted. But I know you're good and I trust you. You learn how to live into the way of God by living with open hands. Over time, we find our deepest, truest life in trusting God. I've personally experienced and am experiencing this open-handed life. Before we came to Madison on our visit back in 2021, uh, we sat down with Rob and, uh, and his wife, Lisa. Rob's our lead pastor at Docs and his wife, Lisa. They're absolutely incredible. We lived on the same street in 2016, had been friends across state lines for a while. But that night over dinner, Rob looked at us, and I remember him saying this. He looked at us, and in the middle of the conversation, he said, you're different. It's not bad. It's actually good, but it's different. And that's because in attempting to live with open hands, Jesus had deeply shaped who Molly and I were. Now, please don't get this twisted. I crashed into my fair share of closed doors with closed hands. And I learned over time to open them. And that over time opening them, God has formed a trust in him that I'm not sure I could have learned or lived in a different way. I've learned that there's a strength that comes from being weak, that there's a resilience that comes from surrender. There were incredible highs and deep lows, but through it all, we've learned and are learning still how to keep our eyes on Jesus and our hands open. This daily decision, daily practice to open our hands and trust God. So I, I wonder, what would God do through you if you chose each day this semester to live with open hands? I want you to hang on to this idea because what God did through Paul's open hands here stretches across centuries and seas from Asia Minor, actually right here to Union South. I'll come back to that here in a second. Maybe it'll start with a simple prayer for you. Jesus, help me to live with open hands. Help me to trust you. So that's the first choice you can make every day is to live with open hands. We see this in the detour. And the second choice we see right here in the dream. Acts chapter 16, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul has a dream. He has a dream. He just wants to see the... Frozen lanterns. What is that tangled thing? I couldn't figure it out. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I lost the plot there. Okay. Paul has a dream. There we go. It's rolling. Okay. He has a vision that appears to him in the night. There's a man that's urging Paul to come to Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is in the exact opposite direction of where Paul was thinking about going. It was to the west. Paul is tried to go two places, he's been shut down, he lives with open hands, trusting in the sovereignty of God. So Paul considers this an answer to his prayer. And in this moment that Paul sees this Macedonian man, this moment changes the trajectory of Paul's life. Consider these two phrases from the text that Paul hears this man say. He says, come over and help us. There's an urging for Paul to go from where he was to where this man is. Interestingly, and you'll see this if you come next week, uh, he doesn't meet a man. He actually meets a woman. It's an incredible story. We'll get there next week. Um, but there's a, a movement here that's required by Paul. He's required to go to a place that he was not planning on going. There's movement and there's desperation. Those two words, help us. If you were to get into the original language here, you'd see that this is no casual ask for help. This is a word that literally combines cry and run together. Crying out for someone to run over and help you, bring you relief, bring you salvation. It's the kind of help that desperately cries out to God. And it 
almost seems like in this moment, God is letting Paul see the Macedonian man the way that God sees him. It's almost like as Paul has this picture, it's the cry of an entire region being summed up in this one vision that Paul is seeing, that the lives of the people in this place were crying out for help, and so God chose to send Paul to help them. Now, that did require Paul hitting two doors and not being crushed by them because he lived with open hands. It also required Paul's eyes to be opened to see this Macedonian man the way God saw him, which brings us to our second choice, the choice to open your hands and the choice to open your eyes. Open your hands and open your eyes. This, of course, is a metaphor. I'm not assuming that you're walking around with your eyes closed. That would be dangerous and slippery outside, candidly. Um, it's also not implying that you need to wait for a vision from God to do this. I'm inviting you to choose every day to ask God to help you see the people who are around you the way that he sees them. One of the first times that God is named by a human is a woman named Hagar. In the Old Testament, she calls him El Roy, the God who sees me. I think that God sees us in a way that should deeply unsettle us and make us feel deep comfort at the same time, a perplexing thing. It's that God not only sees what we do, but he sees how what we do communicates what we need, even if we're not aware of it. Can I give you some examples? When you grind yourself into dust to get some sort of security or approval from your classes, from your grades, from an org, from a job, from whatever, I wonder if God actually sees you crying out for the security and approval that's only found in God through Christ. I wonder if when you blow off steam in a self-soothing way through the comfort of a drink or a substance or scrolling or porn or whatever, I wonder if God sees you crying out for the comfort that's actually only found in God through Christ. I wonder if when you find pleasure or power in unleashing your rage on your friend or your family member or your roommate or your mom or your dad, I wonder if God sees what's beneath that and he sees you crying out to be seen and heard in a way that only he can see and hear you. That if when your identity is self-destructively structured around belonging to a political party or a social group, I wonder if God sees you crying out for belonging that can only come from God through Christ. I wonder if when you try to structure your life to do good works, to balance out the bad things that you tolerate in your life, I wonder if God sees you crying out for the relief of forgiveness that is found only in God through Christ. You may have an allergy to the word sin, but it is the word that scripture uses to describe what we all experience, the brokenness in our world, and if we're honest, the brokenness in ourselves. Our sin is rebellion against God, and it is undeniably, even if unconsciously, a cry for help. And it's almost as if God is saying to Paul in this moment, do you see the people around you the way that I see them? Salt Company, are the people around you scenery in your life, just art to decorate your life because you're the main character of everything? Are they machinery for you to use to get what you want? Or do you see the people around you through the redemptive eyes of Jesus, the redemptive eyes of God the Father who sent his son to live, die, and rise again for the forgiveness and eternal life of every single person that's around you who would trust in Jesus, that they are what they are looking for, what the people around you are looking for can actually only be found in God through Christ. I wonder what would happen this year if you chose to open your eyes and see people the way that God sees them. I think that if you did that, that you would be both strong and gentle. 
you would be strong in the way that you move towards them. You would do costly things to get to the people who are around you as you saw them the way that God sees you and brought the help of the gospel along with you. You would be strong to move and strong to speak, but I also think that you would be gentle. That you wouldn't see people around you as projects or problems, but you'd see them as people who were made in the very image of God that are just as needy for Jesus as you once were, and hear me, as you still are. I think that if you chose to open your eyes and see people as God sees them, you'd remember that the gospel came to you on its way to somebody else. That somebody saw you and brought the gospel to you, a friend, a parent, a leader in your church, whatever. You know your story, and now you have the gospel. You know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You're growing and following after him. That gospel came to you on its way to somebody else, just like it came to somebody else on its way to you. The gospel it came to you on its way to somebody else. Perhaps God has put you right here on this campus to, in the words of the Macedonian man, come over and help. I'm not saying you need to go to Macedonia. That's in Greece. It'd be a cool trip, but that's probably not what it is. But maybe what you need to hear tonight is come over to Lakeshore and help. Come over to Witty and help. Come over to the Memorial Union and help. Come over to the sophomore slums and help. Come over to Langdon and help. Come over to State Street and help. Come over to Mifflin, to Regent, to Bedford and help. Maybe your next step is this simple prayer each morning coming to God and saying, Father, open my eyes to see the people who are around me as you see them and help me to live accordingly. Okay, a detour and a dream giving us two choices. Open your hands and open your eyes. Now the final movement of our story, verse 10, the decision, verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought on to go to, into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I love this verse for so many reasons. It's just so dope to see Luke like record, we sought to go onto Macedonia, not just because the pronoun changes, like it was them and now it's we, so Luke's like a part of their merry little gang here, um, but like it, he's also a part of the decision for them to go to Macedonia. Uh, this word concluding here gives this idea in the original language of bringing together to come to a decision. They brought together, each of them, all the data points that they had and made a decision together. What's incredible is with this huge decision in front of them, they didn't make it in isolation, but they did it in community. This is one of the reasons, just to step to the side here, this is one of the reasons that I love connection groups. You can have honest, open conversations. You can bring difficult decisions, bring all of the data points together, and in community, you can come to a conclusion together. To get to conclude in community is a gift from God. There, there's a dozen reasons you should join a connection group tonight. That's just another one of them. Okay, back onto the text. Sorry, add over. Um, they conclude that God called them to preach the gospel to them, to the Macedonians, which leads us to our final choice that we see in this text. They chose to open their hands, they chose to open their eyes, and they chose to open their mouths. Don't miss the language here. Their conclusion was that God had called them to preach. If you have kind of a weird picture of what that means, here's what it means to preach. To, uh, to speak in a way that was contextualized and compelling for the community that they were going to and specifically to preach the gospel to them. What do you think it would have been like to sit down with Paul and to hear him preach the gospel? I think it would have sounded a lot like what he actually wrote to this friend of his, Timothy, this mentee of his, Timothy, a little while later in 1 Timothy 1, 15, where he said, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
of which I am foremost. Perhaps Paul would have started by talking about God. The gospel, it starts with God after all. The perfect, loving, good, just creator who made humanity to enjoy his good gifts and perfect presence and the safe, secure, and unending joy of his holiness. But humanity chooses to sin. And sin breaks our relationship with God and with one another and it's been breaking it ever since. We sinned and kept on sinning. It was ingrained in our nature with no hope of working or earning our way back into this perfect relationship with God. God promises from the beginning that there would be a savior and when it's obvious that no human could do it, it's as if God says, fine, I'll do it myself. So Jesus Christ comes, fully man to reach us, fully God to save us. He lives a perfect life that we could never live and dies the death that we deserve on the cross for our sin. He becomes sin, though he knew no sin, so that we we would become the very righteousness of God in Christ. Everything that we deserved, he takes on himself on the cross. Everything we could never earn, he gives to us freely by his grace. He forgives us of our sin, experiences the separation of sinners for their sin in our place so that we who trust in Jesus might never know that separation from God and might only know life-giving union and relationship with him. But he doesn't just die on a cross, he rises again from the grave so that we could know that we're not just dead to our sin, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have eternal life with him now and forever. Union with God now and forever. A part of the family of God, sons and daughters of God, now and forever. It's a beautiful reality of the gospel. And then we live in response to this good news of Jesus. We see his love for us and we just love him back. Not to impress, not to pay off, not to prove, not to earn anything, because it's already been earned by Jesus. But as a logical response to the gospel, we follow Jesus as those who have received eternal life from him. That whosoever would call on the name of the Lord could be saved. To turn from your sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Paul might have shared that and then said, and you know who needed that the most? me. <laughs> like you would have looked at him and been like, this isn't just something that I'm trying to get. This is my life. I was a beggar that was hungry and now I know where the bread is. I've been filled and you can know this Jesus too. He would have gone on to say that all who turn from sin and trust in Jesus could be saved by grace through faith in the gospel. This is what Paul went to preach. Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father. No one has eternal life except through him. Jesus is the message that Paul preached because Jesus is the only one that could save. And I need you to hear this if you're new here at Salt Company. Jesus is the only message that we preach because Jesus is the only one who can save. So when we talk about opening up our mouths, we talk about opening up our mouths to share the good news of Jesus. I'm so grateful for the people who chose to open up their mouths and share the gospel with me. My friends DJ and Jill and Romulo and Krista and Alan and Rachel, just to name a few, they preached the gospel to me, which is not to say they were loud or showy or judgmental or out on the state street yelling at me or whatever. No, they simply met me where I was with the truth of the gospel, helped me understand my need for Jesus, and invited me into the way of Jesus to turn from my way of life that was only compounding in pain and brokenness in my sin to stop trying to be my own savior and save myself and trust in Jesus Christ who had done everything that was necessary for me to be saved by his broken body on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. I'm in front of you today because somebody opened up their mouth. Because somebody determined that the gospel came to them on its way to somebody else. And I happen to be that someone else. 
Saul, what could God do through you if you open up your mouth to bring the good news of Jesus? What could he do through you? Who's on the other side of you actually opening up your mouth? Maybe it just starts with a simple prayer. God, help me to open my mouth. Help me to meet the people around me where they are with the gospel. So that's our text. A detour, a dream, and a decision. The choice is to open your hands, open your eyes, and open your mouth this semester and every day after. To to close here briefly, I just want to leave you with one question that I've been praying with Mark your semester and also, to be honest with you, frankly, your life. And the question is this. You've heard me say it over and over and over again, even this evening. It's very simple. I wonder if you've ever wondered, what could God do through you? Like, if you really did choose to open your hands, open your eyes, and open your mouth, what do you think that he could do through you? I mentioned this story would stretch from Asia Minor to Union South, so sit with me here for a moment. This story in Acts 16 is the story of the gospel moving west. Already at this point, the gospel had moved through the near Middle East, Asia Minor, South Asia, into Africa through the Ethiopian eunuch. The gospel was moving east and south as people brought the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ across these regions. But Paul would bring the gospel into Macedonia, into the west, and would start churches, which we'll see in the next couple of weeks. And then those churches would spread throughout Greece. And then they would send people up to plant churches up in Europe. And they would go from Europe across the Atlantic into America. And then over Over time, centuries across America, churches sent people to plant churches. And then zipping all the way up to 1994, there was a church in Ames, Iowa that was planted called Cornerstone. And in 2018, that church sent a team here to Madison to plant a church. That church is called Doxa, where it's college ministry. From Macedonia to Madison, the gospel moves west from Acts 16 to today. And as a result, nearly 2,000 years later, we're sitting in a room talking about the same gospel, the same Jesus, and considering these same choices these followers of Jesus made. They opened their hands and trusted God to lead them. They opened their eyes to see people as God saw them. And they opened their mouths to share the gospel. And this room is beautifully connected to their choices they made as followers of Jesus. That's something that God did through them. What could God do through you? Before that maybe overwhelms you a little bit. Um, There's no way that this is what was on their mind when they went to Macedonia. No one in Acts 16 was like, well, wouldn't it be cool if a college ministry happened 2,000 years from now and Madison was gone? Like, they're not thinking that, right? Not, Not at all. It's much simpler than that. They were just thinking about the next place, the next day, the next person. They weren't saying, let's start a movement. They they were thinking about just the one person that was going to be in front of them, that they'd be led to that one if they just kept their hands open, that they would see that one the way that God sees them, that they would open up their mouths to share the gospel with that one right where they were, that the gospel came to them on its way to someone else, and they got to move towards the one that they once were as the one that they are now. And in 2,000 years, Salt Company, nothing has changed. The gospel is still good news. It's still our deepest joy to know and follow Jesus. It still came to us on its way to somebody else. And as we follow Jesus, we choose to live with open hands, open eyes, and open mouths, and we get to share the gospel with the one who's in front of it. This is what God did through them. I wonder what God could do through you. Um, Logan, you can go ahead and, and come on up. I just got one final thought, and then I'm going to take my seat. Um, three choices for you. I need you to hear this. None of these choices matter or mean anything if you do not first choose to follow Jesus. 
These three choices are not choices that we make to impress Jesus or to earn something from him or to, do, to pay anything off. Not at all. They are choices we make simply in response to following Jesus. We see them in Paul who followed Jesus, but before Paul, we actually see these three things modeled in the life of Jesus. Jesus, who opened up his mouth with strength and gentleness to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, to invite anyone and everyone to repent and to believe. Jesus, who with open eyes saw those who were ignored and overlooked and abandoned and slowed down to be with the poor and the sick and the needy and the lame and the rich and the religious and the robbers and everybody in between. Jesus Christ, who opened up his hands, who the night before he was crucified prayed an open-handed prayer and said, God, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus Christ, who opened his hands and went to the cross that was set before him, knowing that he was going to die for our sins, and those open hands would have nails pierce them so that we who should trust in Jesus might be actually forgiven of our sins. None of these three choices make any sense if we don't first choose to follow Jesus, if we don't first respond to his gospel and him making himself known to you right here right now in this room. So to that end, I'm just gonna take a moment and lead us through a time for you to respond. So you, you can close your eyes and, and bow your heads right where you are. No one's gonna ask you to stand up or do anything odd. No one's gonna be moving around. We just wanna give you a moment of focus and concentration so that you can respond to the text that we've opened up, to these choices, to Jesus himself. Maybe this is the first time you've come to slow down like this all week. And so for some of you in this room, I wonder if the clear next step for you is actually to open up your hands. Maybe right now you take a moment and just pray that simple prayer. God, help me to open my hands. Help me to trust you. I don't know why. Help me to know that I can trust you. some of you, you need to open your eyes. You need to ask God to help you see the people around you the way that he sees them. You know you've been moving too fast through life. You know that you've been moving with such rapidity that you've treated the people around you as scenery or machinery. And in this moment, to just slow down and ask God to help you to see them the way that he sees them. To remember that at one point, perhaps someone saw you the way that he sees you and came to you with the gospel. Ask him to help you open up your eyes. Some of you, you need to ask him to open up your mouths to share the gospel with that person that's been asking questions, that's been curious, or that hasn't. You need to ask God to help you have the boldness to open up your mouth, to share what you know to be true about Jesus with the people who are around you, to not hide the hope that you have in Christ, but to share it, to bring it to people who need him. Ask him to help you open your mouth.
some of you, those three choices don't make any sense because you've not chosen to follow Jesus. Perhaps you just need to hear the words of Jesus where he said that God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that all who would believe in him might not perish, might not experience eternal death separated from God in their sin, but eternal life. By repenting, turning from sin, turning from the brokenness, turning from our way and trusting in Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. That you are tired of trying to be your own Savior tired of trying to figure it out on your own. My prayer is that God would draw you to himself tonight. That you would see Jesus and say, I'm done resisting. I'm done trying to run from you. I trust you as my Lord and my Savior. I believe that you died for my sin. I believe that you were resurrected and risen from the grave. I want to follow you. So Jesus, um, we've come here not to try to manufacture anything, not to try to do anything in and of ourselves, not to try to be impressive. God, I would be sick to my stomach if people walked out saying, great worship, great community, great sermon, but didn't say great God. Um, so would our attention be turned towards you? moments as we worship, as we sing, God, would you help us to see you? Would you help us to live with open hands, to trust you, to live with open eyes, to, to see people around us the way that you see them, to open our mouths and share the greatest news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God saves sinners through Jesus. Help people in this room to come to you tonight be a sinner saved by Jesus even tonight. Lord, we trust you. We love you. It's in your name.